Welcome to the Free Your Energy Podcast. Today's conversation is very interesting. You know, when we get in relationships, we have conflict, right? We definitely have conflict. But what we also have available to us is the ability to resolve conflict, the ability to make space for conflict, the ability to observe how our attachment styles are allowing us to interpret the conflict, the ability to observe our vulnerabilities in the conflict and uh, what our vulnerabilities, what they do for us, what they do against us. And so as I talked with Sylvie today about relationships, I I felt a new space in my heart open up. Sylvie's a relationship coach. Uh, she's an associate psychotherapist. She's a writer. She's the founder of Love with Integrity Coaching. Uh, she earned her master's degree in psychology uh, from the Marriage and Family Therapy Program at Phillips Graduate Institute. And her bachelor's, she got it in sociology from the University of California. She shared early on in the conversation about some of the cultural context that she struggled with being from Saudi Arabia, uh, growing up in Los Angeles, and then dating with those two different contextual uh, identities inside of her. The whole conversation was vulnerable. You know, oftentimes when we look at our therapists and we look at our coaches, we just assume that they have it all together all of the time and everything is perfect for them. And I just find that it's so beautiful to be on the other side of that when you talk with a coach, when you talk with a psychotherapist who can actually say, I have problems too, or I'm working on this is right now. I'm working on that right now. I think it's beautiful because those are the people that I can trust. And under, under the conversation of relationships, one of the main things we're looking for is trust. I want to know that I can trust you. This conversation with Sylvie brought a great deal of trust. And also, she asked me a lot of questions as well, which, which made me and held safe space for me to reflect on who I am and, and, and what I'm choosing. I'm really excited for this episode of the Free Your Energy podcast. And I hope you continue to free your free energy. Free energy. We're going to start with a crazy question. Are you ready? I think so. (laughs) What message do you have for the 10-year-old version of you? Um, That it's okay to make mistakes. That your mistakes make you more lovable and human and, and connection worthy and just Make you so you. Yeah. What were you like as a as a kid? What was I like as a kid? Um, I was pretty shy, um, pretty introverted, very kind of to myself when I was little. Um, I came into my own when I was more in high school, like fifteen or sixteen years old. Um, but I would say I was very shy, very emotional, but didn't know where to put those emotions. Very artistic, very musical. Um, and 
struggling a lot in school because I was not a math person. I was not a geography, like all these things we were studying in those, in those, in those, in those days just did not suit my, my personality and my gifts. So that, that was hard for sure. Yeah. How did your parents adjust or, or, or how did they cope with having an artistic kid, you know, in, in a country, did you grow up here in a country that, you know, tells you you need to be good at these specific subjects? How was that with your parents? I actually was born in Saudi Arabia, and I immigrated. And my ethnicity is Armenian, and due to the Armenian genocide, Armenians were spread all over, all over the world. Very much so in the Middle East, and we immigrated here when I was four. So we were very much in survival mode when we when we came. My sister was five, and you know, leaving our entire everyone behind and extended family members. So I think that was really the initial goal is like surviving and just, you know, getting to a point where we're in school, we're, you know, we're settled. And they, I think for a lot of immigrant families, and um, this is something I've, I've seen a lot is that, you know, parents give up so much. There's so much sacrifice that they want to make sure that their children are put into programs and things that are going to be a little bit, there's more of a guarantee that they're going to do well. You know, you'll see a lot of immigrant doctors and lawyers and financial advisors and, and uh, pharmacists. And that was definitely the path. But, you know, even for my little girl, like I will be a doctor and I will, you know, do these things. And, but they also, the Armenian culture has a lot of artistic side and musical side to it. So I was in piano classes and um, I did little things here and there, but I, I, I struggled with, with structure and with order and I needed to kind of, I'm more of a learner experientially. Um, I don't know if I'm, I'm singing now and I'm like, do you relate to that Sylvester? <laughs> and, 100%. You know, do you? Yeah. Yeah. I love to, you could tell me a hundred times. I could read it a hundred times, but until I experience it, I probably won't learn it, mm. you know, until I feel like I experience it. And then also, I think this is part of the reason why I like writing because writing, the beautiful thing about writing is it shows you your level of competence with whatever you're talking about. Mm. Because if you're, the deeper your writing is, then oftentimes the better you are mastering your subject that you're writing about. But if you're finding yourself not being able to write, that's just proof you don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> and I, as a writer, like I just wish, like when people are so confident in certain subjects, I just wish they would just go write about it because then you will really see, like writing lets you see the flaws in your thinking. That's one of the things I love about it. Mm. Can you go that's back so for a second? Because sure. you mentioned something that I don't know anything about, so I want to ask you about it. You brought up, uh, I think you said Armenian genocide. Yes. And that was that the reason you guys were were leaving? Can you just kind of educate me on what that is? Because I literally know nothing. Sure, sure. So the Armenian genocide took place in 1915 under the Ottoman Empire, and one millions of Armenians were were killed, and I believe it was 1.5 million. And it basically Armenians were taken out of their villages, were forced to march out of their homes in Armenia. And, you know, some ended up in Syria, some ended up in Turkey, some ended up in, in um, Iraq. There was all over the Middle East. And that experience profoundly shaped my family. And the, you know, we talk about intergenerational trauma and PTSD. And um, those elements were very much there and 
played a huge role in me even pursuing, you know, the field of psychology and, and therapy and coaching. So it was devastating. I mean, anything like that is devastating to go through. And, and the impact generationally is, is so, uh, it's so wide and deep. Yeah. Thank you for asking. And who was, who was doing the, the killing of Armenians? It was, it was under the Ottoman Turkish empire. Turkish people. Oh, okay. Okay. And from a geographical perspective, where is Turkey in relation to Armenia? Are they close? Um, yes, they border. Oh, they border. Okay. Yeah. Border each other. Hmm. Wow. I've never, I've never heard of that. Hmm. A lot of people haven't. And this year was the first year actually that, um, Biden recognized Armenian genocide officially. So this has been a really huge, um, I don't know if celebration is the right word, but um, it is in a sense of we know how important validation of something so massive when it's continuously denied, denied, denied by the perpetrators. Um, it just it prevents the process of healing from taking place. And it really does... Um, it does create havoc in that, in that experience, for sure. Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. So you said that Biden recognized it. Uh, how, how so? What has he done? Or what, believe, like, what is he doing? What's happening? I believe it's going to be a Memorial Day now on the calendar. So it will be, I don't know exactly how that's going to take place, whether all over the United States or in Los Angeles only, but I know in Los Angeles it will be recognized. And um, he's taking active steps to um, to just continuously address it and to speak about it and to make it known and to do his part in the way that he can to to make it known and to validate it when other the the you know the 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 cause of it the, the perpetrators of this experience are not doing mm-hmm. that, you know. Mm. So that felt really important this year. It was a huge, huge, huge win for the Armenian people. Yeah. When you moved, did you in? Did you go right to Los Angeles? Like, how did you end up in Los Angeles? We did. Um, so our, Los Angeles has a huge Armenian population. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but Glendale in particular is filled with Armenian wonderful people. And so we really wanted to go somewhere that there was some Armenian community because it's such a huge culture shock to leave somewhere that the norms and the, is so, so fundamentally different. And we wanted to be somewhere where there was a lot of Armenians to have a grounding support. And it was huge. It was a really huge support system of a, of a community feel of people that speak the language, eat the same food, watch the same kind of shows until you know, my sister and I were young. I was four, she was five. So we assimilated pretty quickly. But I, I often say, even as I, you know, entered relationship in my in my thirties, I had no idea how much I was straddling the two cultures, American culture and the Middle Eastern culture, and how much that would show up in my relationships and how just very contrasting some of the messages were were that I internalized in a lot of ways. Give us an example, because that's something, that's a very interesting thing to think about when we think about like the complexities of dating. We often don't think of the cultural, you know, aspects of where people are coming from. You know, we often assume that 
people date the way we date. They think the way we think. But when you're coming from a place where you have this Armenian culture, but you're growing up in Los Angeles of all places, you know, in an American culture, it's like deep contrast. Like walk us through some of the the struggles you may have had or the realizations you may have had uh, dating with the, with that situation. It's a great question. I mean, I want to sit with that for a moment. Um, and cult, the culture piece is huge in my in my personal life, and also in when I work with my coaching clients, it's such a it's such an important lens to consider. Um, I think a lot of the gender roles in in the culture that I grew up with, not just Armenian, but the Middle East in general, um, it was. I think there was a lot of. Um, there was, how do I put this into words? There were roles gen- that were ge- very gender oriented that felt a little bit stricter, more rigid. And I think for me coming here and seeing a lot more fluidity in certain ways, there still exists gender roles. You know, a man should be the provider, you know, this A, B, Z. And for me to really step into my my power, the power is such a cliche, cheesy word, <laughs> but it is, you know, to step into my my voice, my you know, I can go out and have a career that is really, you know, aligned with what my heart wants to do. Those kinds of things felt really taboo, like out of the box for me, especially outside of those more traditional kinds of career choices. Um, I was an actress for seven years. I pursued artistic worlds that was very much out of that. And so I think, um, that was one way that it, I was very challenged and I came up against a lot of resistance, especially in my current relationship where he was actually so supportive of it. It was even more hard. It's like, wait a minute, there's no one that's saying don't do this or you can't do this. And why do I feel now it's on me? I have to explore these internalized messages because I have the support. What is going on? Right. It's so easy to want to put that blame. Well, it's my partner. It's this and it's that. And it, for me, it was recognizing that, wow, I have so much internalized. Um, and again, this cultural narrative is not so related to Middle Eastern culture. It's, it's also just being a woman and feeling the narrowness and the rigidity of what's possible in that in that in those ways. Does that help? Yeah, that helps. They're, they're so that thread, I just feel like there's so many threads there. So is there something that you experienced um, maybe through teenage dating or with your parents Mm. that kind of set inside of you that maybe you didn't recognize until you were dating this partner? I think it's interesting when we get in, you know, when we create these like safe relationships, we're in a, a safe container, but then we resist it. You know, we, we resist the safe space. Even though we all claim we want the safe space and we want to be loved and we want to be seen and witnessed, but then we get it and it's like, oh shit, no, this isn't what I wanted. Hold on, what's going yeah. on? You know, so. 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, I did, dated someone. Did you have young. that? Yeah, I dated okay. someone early on in high school that was very, whew, very controlling, rigid, very just. Uh, it's emotionally abusive in very subtle, confusing ways. And um, it's interesting because I, I shut that away for a long time. I never really dealt with it. I never really talked about it. And then it came up years and years later. I was like, I'm, I don't care about this person. And I didn't, but it was the underlying layers of how oppressed I felt in that relationship that were coming up because I felt so safe in my current relationship to finally process um, 
from from wearing a skirt and being you know having criticism from just things that were when you're so young you just don't really i think you know something's off but you also don't know how to really navigate those things or even have the language to 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 know what to do per se but i did leave that relationship when it started to come come across really intensely and um yeah it, it definitely um something that i was very mindful relationally was just being really aware if if i will i would feel that oppression in a partnership and i haven't since that relationship which was which is a really good thing so when you came out of that relationship and you felt like, okay, something, obviously you were younger, so you, we, yes. you, you didn't have the, the language to really describe it, but you had that feeling. What happened inside of you? Did, did something say, hey, I need something else or I need more information or like what was going on inside of you to help you recognize that that type of relationship is one that you would not settle for in the future? Um. I definitely did not do any processing back then. I probably put it in a box in my container. I I have been diagnosed with PTSD. So PT, anyone that resonates with trauma into the PTSD spectrum, we have a way of compartmentalizing things. So I put it in a box and I didn't really think about it much. I knew I was pretty, I think I was good with recognizing if I felt that energy from a person to you know, when it, when it became clear to walk away, but like I was mentioning earlier, it didn't come up for me until my mid thirties. So 15, 16 years old. And then in my thirties is when it's starting to really bubble up. And I'm trying to like, no, this is, this, this isn't, this doesn't affect me anymore, but it wasn't so much the person, it was understanding the lens and oppression and the the systematic layers, I think when I worked on that with my therapist was, it helped me to um, understand how when you feel trapped and oppressed, it doesn't matter if you're safe, you still feel trapped and oppressed, right? I still felt trapped in my body. I still felt uncomfortable to be vulnerable in certain ways or, you know, express myself through my creativity, which has been, I think for me, the hardest thing is like really, you know, stepping in, like you said, with your, with, with your writing, Sylvester, you know, same for me through writing and writing has been really, really healing for me. And I think I heal a lot through, through the arts, through the artistic expression. I don't know if I answered your question, but I feel like I went in a circle. Did I answer your question? We're jamming. Circles are We're fine. Jamming. Circles are fine. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of the times, you know, we're always looking for direct answers or like how to do list or exact bullet points of answers and solutions. And honestly, for me, that's not really the end goal. Like my my whole angle is let's just have a conversation about the things we want to talk about and let's let the whole image of that conversation be the guiding point. Like we don't have to just say these are the three bullet points. These, You know what I mean? It's like we mm -hmm. want these cliff notes to no. like I, I've never been into that. So I'm into circles. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm into tangents. Feel free. <laughs> How did you. So you said uh, you were an artist for seven years. You were an, an actress. Uh, was that. Like, how did that come about? Was that like a coping mechanism? Was that, you know, you were just like, oh, I'm about to be this actress? Like, walk us through that journey, because that's interesting. Seven years mm -hmm. is quite a long time. Yeah, you know, when I think about my acting journey, it's interesting, because uh, so I was 
pre-med originally when I went to um, undergrad and then immediately hated it. <laughs> I was like, I hate biology. I hate physics. I hate, I'm like, there's no way. I, can, I, will, I will literally die if I continue pursuing this field. So I changed to um, a, psych, a sociology major, which I love, like studying people and culture. And oh my gosh, it was heaven. And then when I graduated, I felt this pull. I was like, okay, so what's next? And I started to gravitate. And obviously being in LA, it's, it's, it's so tempting. It's so, so many artistic professions are around you and endeavors. And I just, I had the inkling for a long time. I think when I was young, I was very much a performer. I was a, I, I was a, I sang when I was a little girl, like at two years old, I would just burst out singing when guests would come over and I was very animated. And I think the trauma again in my family system, really, I, I, I got really shut down with a lot of that. And so it was, it was bursting and aching for a space to come out. And when I was acting, I remember it wasn't so much for me about, sure, is it nice to, to book a wonderful role and be famous? Is there perks to that? Of course there are. And I would be lying to say that that's not, that's not part of it, right? But underneath that, and, and I didn't know there was so much healing, is um, I got to heal the, like, the anger through a role that I would play. I got to heal the sadness through a role that I got to play. I got to feel into all these emotions that I felt so disconnected from in these roles. These roles like saved me. They created a space for me to be my full, ex fully expressed self. And there was a point where I got, I started doing a workshop. I was invited to, um, like a healing workshop environment, um, that I started to really tap into the real, the realness underneath those roles. And that's when I started to get pulled away from the acting. I was like, okay. So it wasn't, it wasn't about, maybe this was a period in my life that really just helped me heal those layers. And, and I started to get really drawn into the field of psychology and, and healing the, the roots of what that was about for me. I still love the performing aspect. You know, if there was something to come up that really aligned and resonated in the storyline, I would be open, but it's not something I really actively pursue anymore. Um, it's not, it doesn't, that thread is, has got, is thinned out a bit, a lot bit. What if an opportunity came to play uh, a therapist or a, a, a coach? I feel like that would be so in alignment with you. I actually did book a role um, in a film that I played a therapist. <laughs> Like really? Three, like two and a half, three years ago. Yeah. And why am I blanking out on the movie? Um, it's terrible, Sylvie. How dare you forget the movie you played in? But it was a, it was a very sweet Armenian cast um, where I actually played a therapist. And again, very aligned. You know, I didn't like that I was booking roles where I had to play these these characters that they just didn't it just didn't feel good. I wanted to have more choice over the kinds of roles that I played. And when you're in the industry, you don't really at the beginning stages, you don't really have a lot of that. And so. Um, alignment is huge. Alignment is huge for me. Tell I've never me about... really talked about this on a podcast, Sylvester, by the way. So this is so, <laughs> I feel a little vulnerable and exposed myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're willing to share. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Tell me about your work today. You, I mean, it's, I get to see it from afar. Uh, through the lens of social media, but I know it's much deeper than social media. Tell me about the whole spectrum of your incredible work. Ah, so I first started working as an associate 
uh, psychotherapist. Um, it's been about eight years on and off, but I also did coaching along the same. I did both. And I actually am just taking a pause from therapy now to really focus on just the coaching, relationship coaching. And really what drew me in, so many things. I started off working with kids. It started off, you know, really wanting to support family systems. That's what my <clears throat> master's degree was, uh, marriage and family therapy. And now what I really love is working um, in the intimate relationship domain in the romantic relationship domain, in the friendship domain, and working with couples and singles to help them really um, understand themselves. I work a lot with attachment theory and boundaries, as I know you do as well. We're going to have to have a whole other session to jam just about boundaries together. <laughs> I'm and, down with that. I'm down with that too. And so I love just supporting people to make repairs more quickly to understand what their role is in arguments so they they don't stay um stay in those patterns of disconnect for long periods of time because i think so many of us do myself included not knowing not having the language to articulate hey this is what i'm going through i i call myself a recovering blamer <laughs> you know it's so mm. easy for me to to blame and to criticize when i'm upset that's my go to I've had to work really, really hard, and I still actively have to work really hard of like, hey, what's going on inside of me? You know, that's my therapist's favorite line to me whenever I go to therapy. She's like, okay, I got it. All of that I understand. Now, Sylvie, what's happening for you in all of this? I was like, shit, I don't want to go there, you know, because that's, that's the vulnerable <laughs> stuff. It's hard. Um, so wanting to support other people in that as well from in a very loving and compassionate way, helping them understand that their defenses are there for a reason to protect them. Um, they didn't just come out of nowhere. And how do we put that guard down? How do we put the armor down so that you can actually connect in a vulnerable way? When people used to say the word vulnerability, I used to be like, what the heck is it? Like I literally did not understand. Um, I still don't understand it in a very tangible way, but I understand when I'm in it, I know what it feels like. Now, the discomfort mm. that, that comes with it um, and learning to tolerate that. Like if, if I started doing podcasting, I would have never been able to have this conversation. There's no way. Like my tolerance has grown. Mm. And you, you have a podcast now, right? I do. It's called Love with Integrity. It's on pause for the moment because I, I, don't, I just don't have the capacity to write Instagram posts and do my podcast at the same time. <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot. Trust me, I know. I had to take uh, three months off from the podcast because I was, you know, running all, all of my social medias, plus being a father. And I was working on a book. And it was just like my mind was just too many hats. You know, we talk about boundaries. And I had to put a boundary on something. And I recognized mm -hmm. that it would be better for me to step away from the podcast for a few months so I could finish the book. And then, you know, when I, you know, have the capacity to come back. So that's why I made the switch. A book is a lot. It takes a lot of creative energy. It's a lot. Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's so hard. This is my ninth one. And it's wow. the hardest one to write. So hard. Can you share what um, it is about? That, like that, the, the book or yeah, the yeah. part that's making it hard? The, theme, the book theme. Oh, uh, the book is called Loving Yourself Properly. Mm. And so about two years ago, everyone was just messaging me. And they're like, hey, you need to write a book on self-love. And I'm just like, okay, but what is self-love? Like we use the term, but what is it? Like, what does it really mean? Mm. So I got really curious about asking that question. What is self-love? Because 
when you see when you see the aesthetic version of it online, you see what other people share is taking a bubble bath and having some wine and reading a book. I'm like, no, nah, that can't be self-love. Like maybe it is, mm. but that can't be the totality of self-love. It has to be much deeper. So then I got to asking people, what is self-love? I got to asking a bunch of guys first and they didn't have any answers for me. Wow. I'm like, wow, this is, this is, uh, and it was, this was like my close friends. So then I started asking some ladies, I'm like, Hey, what's self-love? And the answers that I got from them was very like body focused and very like achievement focused. Interesting. Like, like I didn't get real answers that like I could settle on for myself. So that's why I said, okay, I got to write a book about this. I have that to, is I have so to. fascinating. Yeah. Well, looking forward to to seeing seeing that in in tangible form. Soon, it's coming soon. I saw. Um, hold on, I want to go back because you said something that you talked about in your work. You t- you work with uh, attachment styles, attachment theory. Uh, you work with boundaries. You're trying to invite people into a more intimate and vulnerable space. Yes. So let's say I contact you, mm-hmm. and I say, "Hey, I need help." Um, relationship is not going well. Me and the wife still want to be together. What happens next? Um, well, if I were to be working with a couple right now, um, the first process is always understanding, you know, it's a, it's like a combination of meeting them with where, where they are and like helping them in the moment in real time. And also understanding their historical context, their cultural context, their vulnerabilities. That's what I'm always looking for when I'm working with an individual, especially with a couple. Because their vulnerability, the 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 situation will change, the, the content shifts, but the context is always the same, right? This when you do this, it hits my vulnerability of feeling left out or feeling abandoned, um, or feeling controlled, or feeling um, like you don't consider my feelings, right? So I'm looking and I'm listening to those underneath layers as they're kind of going through their moment to moment stuff and then really helping them, uh, with role play and, um, you know, giving them language to try on and obviously adjust as needed, because I find that that is so missing. You know, most of my couples that come to me, they're like, I've been to therapy, I've done this, but I already know what the problem is. I don't know what to do next. What do I do? Like, how do we do things differently? So people are yearning for new language, new skills. So it's all about that skill set, um, learning new skill sets. So, you know, if this is the way I normally respond to my partner and it triggers their defensiveness, let's try something different. Let's try you kind of softening into your own vulnerability. And sometimes a lot of times people don't just, they don't have the words and they need that guidance in the, in the room or virtually to, to support them. So they're starting to build that muscle of relating and responding a little bit differently. This is just one tier. Obviously there's so many tiers, right? Where there's, um, systemic oppression layers. Where does each partner hold privilege in their relationship and acknowledging those Mm. things? How, how were those things dealt with, named, identified, and, um, is there compassion being shown to those things? So it's like there's there's so many different angles to work with. It's it's so exciting. I get so excited talking about it. Um, it's so juicy for me. But it's 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 a 
it's a living, breathing entity, you know, and every couple comes with different needs, but you hear deeper layers as they, um, as they share what they're struggling with and helping them to drop into vulnerability and, and sharing relatable stories when it's appropriate to help them understand that I'm a human and that I struggle and, you know, I'm in a relationship and I might be a relationship coach, but, you know, we have conflict and we repair. So helping them to repair more quickly is, is another layer, I would say, so that people don't get stuck in, in those long patterns of disconnection. Mm -hmm. The long pattern of disconnection. I really like the language, you know, just talking the same language. Like I think about as a former athlete, one of the most important things I played football. One of the most important things is the language of the playbook. Like mm -hmm. you would not be able to be, uh, you know, from the Crosstown Rivals team and then just come into game day with us and then just like you could be the best player on the other team but then you come to our team and on game day you're not going to know anything you're not going to know the assignment you won't know the language you won't know the plays you don't know the culture you don't know the system so like when i listen to you talk about it it's i'm really like i felt like i was listening to a head coach talk mm. about you, you know sports you're like we need okay. to talk the same language like, otherwise, if we're not talking the same language, we're not running the same plays. And if we're not on this, like, relationships is a dance, essentially. It right. Is. So it's like, if we're using the language to dance together, then it's the, what'd you say, the, let's shorten the time of disconnect? Yeah, let's, let's try to repair more quickly so that the, the stories we make up in our head, they don't go into our long-term memory, which is what can happen in, based on so attachment. What, recently or are present right now what's some language that you either used or coached uh to that's coming up that we could could take with us something tangible we could take with us i think the the language what i what i what i so what i work on with with an attachment lens framework is um is how do we create win-win situations here which is also maybe a sports terminology you tell me sylvester it is it <laughs> is no, win-win situation <laughs> <laughs> so you know in the past i'll use myself an example you know if i'm feeling anxious or insecure about something i used to present it in a way that was really all about me which can work if you have a really solid maybe secure partner that can handle that but most people will get activated if if they don't feel like they're being considered in that dynamic if i'm not using i statements so if i would come from very blaming critical uh from a critical blaming stance because my fight would be activated the fighter in me would be activated so what the what the languaging style that i i coach people on is how do you express exactly what you're trying to say with taking responsibility for, but also looping the other person into this experience, looping them in so they're not left out, so that you're also taking care of them in this conversation too. So one of the things I, I do vigilantly, vigilantly, what's the word? <laughs> with vigilance? You got it. You got it. <laughs> one both, of the things both are correct. <laughs> vigilantly <laughs> is, you know, um, when I'm bringing something that I'm heard about in my relationship with my partner, I'll usually make sure to include the words, listen, you're not doing anything wrong. Okay. This is what I'm upset about. I feel hurt about this. You didn't do anything wrong. I'm not blaming you. Like really being mindful of the language. It's like a language that soothes the other while you are 
stepping into what you're sharing and experiencing. If we just did that, Sylvester, right? Can you imagine how, much, how many more difficult conversations we could be having? It, yeah, because when the entry point is, I am not here to hurt you, or I'm not trying to hurt you. But when we enter, like just when you said it, um, you didn't do anything wrong. Just when you gave it as an example, I felt safe and I felt light. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, you're going to tell me what you're feeling, right? It's like, it's like yes, an invitation. Yes. It's beautiful. Hmm. Well, then it can so help disarm you so that you don't, I don't activate your defensiveness, especially if I know that you're someone that tends to feel criticized quickly. That's the languaging I want to focus on. If I'm working with someone that maybe is more sensitive to, you know, their parents got divorced, the parent left, they might be sensitive, like, oh my gosh, this person is going to bring up something up. What's the vulnerability that's likely going to be activated? I'm going to be left. They're going to leave me. I'm right here. I'm not going anywhere. Just want to have this, you know, I just want to have this conversation. We can do this. I believe in us, you know, really kind of speaking into that. That's something that my partner has really, you know, um, helped me to see. Like, he's like, I, I just want us to always be partners. And that's just something I need, but that's something he needs to know. So it's like being really flexible with understanding that we all have different sensitivities that likely last with us. Like they, they, we, they don't just get healed and they go away and put into some pocket somewhere. They, they're with us. They're, 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 they get activated in moments of distress and to stop trying to make those things not exist anymore. Like they're going to be my vulnerabilities. I have two or three that will likely be with me for the rest of my life. My partner knows that. And same with him. So if we could start communicating to what soothes those fears, because that's where their brain is going to go. As soon as we approach them with something that we're upset about, hurt with, that they feel bad about themselves about and knowing a little bit of their history, you know, what were their parents like? And so that's what I would, that's what I would really emphasize. If they take people take anything from this podcast is how do I incorporate the other's sensitivities? Um, when I'm bringing up things, especially the really hard things. Man, that gave me a lot to think about. What would within my, man, my own if, life? I was about to ask you: Is it okay if I yeah. probe you with about it a little bit? Yeah, feel free. Yeah. Um, so, if someone was approaching you with something difficult, Sylvester, what would be the thing? What would be the languaging that would help to disarm you? It's not obviously so, just one thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, for me personally, it is always how things are being communicated. Always. For example, um, yelling, I'm, I instantly, I'm not listening. I'm not even going to listen to you. If, you. if you come into it and you're yelling, I don't even care what you have to say at all. That's a product of growing up in a household where both of my parents would yell at each other, at me, you know, to get their points across. So as an adult, yelling, I personally don't do it. In my own relationships, I don't, I don't, yeah, I'm not going to yell because it's destructive. It's destructive communication. So for me, like my entry point that turns me off is um, definitely blaming. Like right. you messed this up. You did like that very aggressive tone. I'm, I'm, I'm already out of the conversation as soon as that happens. Um, 
I need and my boundary is that if the if the invitation to the conversation is not safe, I, I withdraw. But my withdrawal, I always communicate my withdrawal. And I'll say the reason why I'm not going to participate is because you're yelling, because you're screaming, because you're whatever it is. Like I always will communicate what the thing is. Now, I've always been this way, though, since I've been dating, since I was in high school. But what I recognized is like my first two girlfriends in college. And then when I got out of college, they were both. They were both women who when they would when they would be upset or whatever emotion was guiding them, it would take them past a point where they could kind of like breathe into their body and like gain some type of self-consciousness about what was going on, like some type of self-awareness. They really couldn't. When, when their emotions became triggered, they would just go into whatever reaction would be triggered by the emotion. So for me, neither one of them was a safe partner for me because they couldn't, they didn't have the ability to take a break and just, okay. Because the thing is, is you're allowed to be upset. You're allowed to be whatever you are. You're allowed to be pissed, but there's an agreement of our container of how we're going to interact and how we're choosing to interact. And I've made it perfectly clear. Like you said, one of my vulnerabilities and sensitivities is you're not going to yell at me. I'm not going to yell at you, but I can't have you yelling at me because it instantly reminds me of growing up in a traumatic experience with two parents who used to yell. Mm. And for me, the yelling was also associated with physical abuse. Mm. So the cycle that I experienced as a kid was yelling and then physical abuse. So obviously as an adult, that wasn't it. So like the, the partner I'm with now, we've been together about six years. She doesn't communicate that way. She doesn't yell. She tried to once. <laughs> and then I told her, I was like, hey, I'm just going to let you know. Uh, I don't want to communicate like that. And so she came into agreement with me, like, hey, we won't communicate like that. So we don't. Beautiful. We don't communicate that way. Well, it's like that tone, right? For some of us, that tone, that like that, it's, it's, it's like the first tier for something really bad to happen. So, of course, right, that that would be a boundary makes so much sense. And, you know, one of the things is like, I always think about that. It's like, if someone is not willing to make adjustments, knowing these things, it's, it's so hard to feel safe. Right. Right. It's so hard. Right. If you know what hurts me or what is a trigger to me, or as you're saying, if you know what's a vulnerability to me, but then you're unwilling to adjust, how do I come into intimacy with you? Like, yeah. I mean, how? Because I feel like if I'm going to come into an intimate relationship with you, into an intimate connection with you, and you're unwilling to adjust to the things that hurt me or potentially could hurt me, it's almost like I have to self-abandon in a way to just live on hope, living on the hope that one day you'll change or one day you may treat me right. And how many people do we see stuck in this hope cycle? Like, oh, well, I'll change them. How? I always wonder that. I've always wondered that. And I know your work, you've, you've probably dealt with this more than me. When you get someone who's like, oh, I'm just going to wait for them to change or I'll change them. Like, what are we, what are, what are we doing? Well, How do you work if with them? Not, if there's no adjustment ability or there's no repair happening, like on the other side, like I imagine if someone did yell. And it's this, there's certain things and it's like, I think it's for all of us to decide, like, what are the, what, what do I have tolerance, tolerance for and what don't I? And that's up to us. Like you said, it's our boundaries and, you know, figuring out 
what is repairable if it's really taken, if there's true, honest accountability and effort being made to work on it, right? If someone came to you and said, you know, you know, I, I, I do this. I grew up in this environment too, where I, you know, there was yelling and this is my kind of first impulse, but you know, I really want to go to therapy and work on this. And I'm so sorry. It's awful. Like, I can't believe like I'm doing the very thing to you that was in like, we're talking about something a little different there. Right. And right. right. That's different. It's different because then at least like I'm acknowledging like this, that I care that this is sensitive for you and that I never want to make you feel like that. And this is what I mean by languaging because I didn't have this languaging, right? Even what I'm saying to you right now, like I didn't grow up with this languaging, even just being able to repair and tune into like, holy shit, like I am contributing to you feeling unsafe and that's horrible and I hate that and I want to work on that. No. What's one thing? Obviously, there's a there's a million, but what's one thing that, from a intimate relationship perspective, that you want the listeners to reflect on at this moment hmm. with what they're bringing to their relationships? Now, of course, there's also going to be those people who are single right now, and maybe they're not in an intimate relationship. So maybe, maybe you have a reflection for them as well. I think it can apply to both. I think, um, I think similar to the thread that we've been talking about is, is really for, for all of you, you know, for all of us to spend some time really exploring what those common threads, themes are that continue to show up in our relationships. What are the, what are the vulnerabilities that live within me? How can I really name them? and face them, not necessarily do the healing work without, you know, a professional or something, but just kind of knowing what those two or three things are and how to start communicating those things earlier on in my, in our relationships, even a friendships, because they will come up in intimate relationships and in our friendships. And then how do I start getting curious about paying attention to the vulnerabilities and sensitivities of others so that we can start incorporating, you know, it's easy to think when we're in conflict, someone's upset or someone's defensive, that that's just like, oh, this person is annoying. That well, Why are they getting defensive about this stupid thing? But when you know the historical context and you understand what their vulnerabilities are, oh, it just breathes so much compassion and empathy. And you see the little, the little baby, the little child in all of us, that we're all little, you know, I feel like we're all walking around with these, you know, these little inner children that, that just are always longing to be held when we're, we're hurting. So I think that's, that's the, I think that can be such a valuable, um, a valuable relational, personal and relational skill to be present with and in, in cultivating awareness around. So how do you, if you don't mind this question, how do you and your partner have fun? Have fun. All right. Yeah. Because uh-huh. fun is, fun is also important, right? That's an important part of relationships. So. How do you guys have fun? It's a great question. It's been a challenge to have fun experiences during the pandemic, for sure. Um, I'm a goofball, so I think I, you know, I'll put on, for my acting days, I'll put on wigs and characters and I'll just put on like a little a little show and we we share a similar sense of humor. So we laugh at the same things, which is helps so much. Um, and we can make fun of, we can make fun of ourselves. I think that's one of the ways we have fun. Um, is spending time with friends. 
the friends that we have been able to see during this time. And um, we have a lot of fun through music. He plays the drums and I play the piano and sing. And so I think we bring a lot of joy through that. And we're both really longing for um, more nature time. So that's, I think, the next step of our journey is wanting to do more adventurous things as things start to open up again and having fun in more of those nature-oriented ways. I relate to that a lot. I feel a deep call right now to be in nature. Uh, Currently living in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, It's a city of about 400,000 right outside of Phoenix, right outside of Scottsdale. So very like busy, populated area. We have a lot of tourists here. Arizona is open. We've been open for business. So, you know, a lot of people have been here. Uh, You know, there's a lot of traffic now, which there hasn't always been that. And I just feel my, like, I just feel my soul just calling to be in some isolated trees and wind and water. And Mm. I'm starting to, and I mean, you live in LA, so I know you have an opinion of this. I'm starting to feel like we are not supposed to be in cities. I'm really starting to feel that way. And part of the, part of what makes me think that I want to get your opinion on that, on that concept is when I think about like the heightened anxiety that they've been reporting over the last few years, I wonder how much of that is happening in places where you're able to do nature walks and and able to like experience sun in the ocean and lakes and trees. And I wonder what, how much of that is happening in these cities with the brick buildings and the cell phone towers and the construction and the potholes and the traffic and the high taxes. You know, I've I've always wondered that. And I just, I'm starting to really have this thought that we're not supposed to be in these tight, congested cities. Mm. What's your, what's your opinion? It's so interesting that you're bringing this up. This is something that my partner and I talk about all the time. He's definitely more connected to what you're saying than I am because I think I grew up in LA. So I don't really, of course I know what nature is, but I, I grew up in cities. So like, this feels homey for me. Although... Um, yes, I've been dreaming about what would it be like to take my clients for a forest bathing walk? Like, just like, Mm. let's do a session while we walk through this beautiful, lush green forest. I'm like, there's no forest here in LA. Why are we going to go do that? You know. (laughs) But there's this book that it's, it's on my bookshelf. That's my next read. It's called nature and the human soul by Bill, Bill Plotkin. And it speaks to what you're naming is this huge disconnection that we're going through being away nature and how we're missing out on that co-regulatory experience with nature and the, it's it's it is it is a strange thing to not be exposed to nature and like I just want to put my feet in like this lush grass and it's 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 definitely something that uh, that's on my mind my partner and I are uh, looking to move from here and that's one of the conversations that's been in in our sphere so you're naming it where we're, we're thinking about what that looks like and where will give us more of that nature more regularly. Everything is in alignment. Everything yes. is always in alignment. What, uh, what places have you guys considered? Um, his family is from Maryland. So Maryland is on the map. Um, we went to North Carolina in like two months ago to see if that was a possibility. Asheville doesn't seem like that's the spot, but it was mm. beautiful. I mean, the, just yeah. the green and the lush. And so East coast is, is vibing for sure. It has more rain. It has more seasons. It has more nature. And I think that is really 
you know, thinking of where we want to raise, you know, when we have kids, where we want to raise them. Um, nature is, is, is a big thing. It's huge. There are some really nice spots uh, in California, too, like uh, yes. Big Bear and um, Lake Tahoe. I have some friends up there now. And um, California is a beautiful state. Oh, man, it's so beautiful. It is. It is. Northern California, especially, like you said, like Tahoe or where Big Sur is. It's just there's some really Sur, beautiful yeah. spots. Are you planning on staying in Arizona, Sylvester, for a while? So I came here in 2012 from Chicago. Mm. And I feel like Arizona has served its purpose to me. So I'm here now and I like it, but I'm also, I feel, I don't know, as a, as a writer, it's kind of weird to be in the same place for an extended amount of time. I feel like you have to, as a, as a writer, I feel like you have to travel mm. you have to get in random conversations and you have to ask questions. And I feel like if you, I just feel like if I sit at my desk and write books, they'll be, they'll be okay. But when I'm out and I'm in conversations and I'm in threads, like I just learned so much from you today. Mm. I feel like this is the work of a, of a writer. You're supposed to ask questions and go on a journey of continuous learning. And part of me thinks that being here for eight years, I feel like it served a purpose just contextually. Uh, I'm 35 now. I came out here when I was, no, I've been, I've been here longer than eight years. Cause I got here in 2012. So that's about nine years now, nine years, you know? So I got out here. I'm 24. I was a young kid, essentially. From now cold I feel like Chicago. I'm a From cold <laughs> Chicago, you know? <laughs> and uh, I just had big dreams and aspirations. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be an author, but I also had so much healing to do because Chicago was a painful experience. So I really came here to heal and to find myself. And now that I feel like I've accomplished that, my soul is like wondering, okay, okay, what's next? Where are you going to go? And I think that you're speaking to something that's so important to, for all of us to think about. It's like we go through developmental stages, right? Like you said, there's like there's stages where we're in exploration, stages where we might want to be more settled, stages where, and you know, that's part of the book that Bill Clotten, Bill Clotkin, Plotkin. I'm so sorry, Bill, for butchering your name, um, talks about is like these stages that we all go through. And, and I totally hear you on wanting different new stimulations so that you can spark new mm-hmm. ideas. Otherwise, things start to feel really stagnant when you're a really creative person. Right. Yeah, right. I hear you. You and my partner need to have a conversation because you guys are speaking the same thing right now. <laughs> I, I love to. Because y- you know how this is as, as a... <gasps> A singer-songwriter, as a piano player, as an actress, you never know what's going to inspire you. The smallest thing outside of your normal routine or outside of your normal scope, you'll see and you're like, wow, this is so inspiring. But if you don't step outside of yourself, you know, are you how how much are you allowing creativity to come to you if you never step outside of your own routine? That's what I've been asking myself a lot. And that's such a great question. And I think for me, as someone who chose a partner who's really adventurous and risk, he he he's the risk taker in our relationship. I'm the tether. So like I'm like, let's stay here. Let's not go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but we chose each other for exactly that. Like for that balance, me bringing family and that groundedness, and me him helping me. I mean, I feel like I was able to step into so much of my my creativity because of having him as that as that support system. And, you know, 
I'm so, I think that, you know, even you saying that is, is, is feel, it feels reassuring as I step into like p- the potential of living somewhere else. And I've never lived anywhere besides LA. It's like so scary. And there's a part of me that like is feeling like, okay, Sylvie, you can do this. You can take on this adventure and, and see what else comes alive through you changing that environment. And, um, it's exciting. It's very scary all at once for sure. For me, you have some amazing programs. You have that boundaries program. Tell, tell us about everything that you're doing. Tell us about your whole, oh. cause I know people are going to want to come into your circle. So tell Thank us about you. the whole circle. By the way, my nickname growing up has always been Sylvester, Sylvester. So we share that in common too. <laughs> really? Yes. Well, that's Sylvester. interesting. Sylvester has been my nickname growing up. Um, so you can find me mostly on my main hub, which is Instagram at Sylvie Kukassian. I won't spell it, but I'll, you know, I'll, if you, if you want to share that in the, in the notes, it's a, it's a little bit yeah, of a Yeah, I'll hard take care of that. Name. Okay. <laughs> also, I have been wondering for like, I think I've been following you for like two years, maybe. I've been f- wondering the whole time how to pronounce your last name. It's Hugasian. How do you say it? Hugasian. Oh, man. It's like, so with a, like with a ch. Thank you. <laughs> Do you want do you want to give it a go? You want to try? Oh, you want me to Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> let, let me hear you say it two more times. Sure. Sylvie Hugasian. Sylvie Hugasian. You got this, Sylvester. Oh, okay. I believe in you. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. <laughs> All right. Here we go. On three, two, one. Sylvie Hugasian. Pretty good. Pretty close. You just yeah, want to give it a little bit more more ch. Okay. Well, thank you for trying. That was a good try. Yes, it was thank a fantastic you. try. You're welcome. So that's the name you can find me at on Instagram, uh, where I share lots of lots of support around around relationships and insights. Um, also have a boundaries program and a um a dating with attachment styles as your guide program, which is really for singles that are wanting to um, use the, the understanding of the attachment theory framework to um, understand their needs better, their boundaries better. So much practical language in there to help them navigate that journey. Do you have a book? Not yet, but it's in the ethers. It's not. It's not time yet. I'm not pregnant with the book yet. Yeah, books come. books are tough. When you when you get ready, let me know if I can help. I was, uh, I was just going to say definitely. I will come to you for guidance. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely try to help you. It's oh, it's tough. Good. One of my friends, she's a therapist in Iowa, and um, I just wrote the forward for her book, mm. and I was just so proud of her because she sent me the manuscript, and it was like 120 pages, and it was just really really good. And she's the person that uses the terminology of uh, "I'm not a writer." But when I'm reading this book, I'm like, dude, this is incredible. Like, this is great. Like, this wow. is so good. So I I believe I'm a little naive here, but I believe that everyone is a writer. I feel like if you have thoughts, you're a writer. That's just my opinion. Everyone has stories to tell, right? We all have a story to tell. We all have things we we resonate with that it's like something about hearing different people talk about the same exact thing and it comes through so differently. I I think that's just unbelievably fascinating. Mm -hmm. 
You know, like we I have both a question have programs for you. on boundaries, and they're probably similar in some ways and so different in other ways. Oh, they're probably they're probably very very similar, and probably very very different. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be interested to take yours. I think I think I think I will learn a lot. We'll have the boundaries. Maybe we could, yeah, maybe we could collaborate. Totally. I have a question for you. Okay. These are your words. I'm about to read. Appreciating a person's effort, even if it doesn't hit the mark fully, Mm. is a love language. Yes, it is. There's more. Asking questions to genuinely get to know someone is a love language. Being willing to lean into vulnerability and take emotional risk is a love language. Oh, this one is timely. Sharing your hurt without blaming or criticizing is a love language. Listening for the emotion, excuse me, listening for the emotional message beneath the words spoken is a love language. Exploring and acknowledging the areas you hold privilege is a love language. Ooh, this one. Being mindful of and sensitive to the context is a love language. Mm. And lastly, recognizing your defenses and owning them when they become activated is a love language. This post is mind-blowing. This is yours. You posted it April 19th. Thank you so much, Sylvester. Thank you. Hearing you read it felt like very poetic, so thank you. It feels like everything we talked about, you put in that post, actually, which is interesting. interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. What an honor to share this space with you today. Thank you. This was a very delightful surprise. Because we haven't really talked before but much, you know? So like, oh. Right, right. Lovely. So I'm going to let you do your closing remark for anything that's on your mind that you want to leave our listener with on your heart, anything that feels genuine to you. I think just the biggest thing that I would leave people with is, is it's just one step at a time. You know, I think we can make things so big in our minds and procrastinate and, you know, feel so afraid of this huge mountain that something can feel like. And really at the end of the day, that one step, take the step that you can take. And that's a huge step, you know, and I think we live in a culture where we're expected to do these big, grand things. Um, and we can forget how um, just those, those micro moments, how much of a vital role they play in our lives. Taking one, just take the next step, just one step.